Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, joined as always by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings in San Diego. Uh, this is our last show of the year, and we're very excited about it. We've got a great uh, dead show to feature today, uh, one uh, that you might even say inspired the whole uh, Dick's and Dave's Pick series. Uh, we're going to be listening to The Grateful Dead uh, from December 19th, 1973, 49 years ago today, at the Curtis Hickson Convention Hall in Tampa, Florida, otherwise known as Dick's Picks, Volume 1. Dan, uh, do that uh, introduction for us, please, and... Uh, Gesundheit in advance to Bobby. Welcome. Uh, nice to have you on as always. I love that song. It's a great show opener. And um, hey, everybody sneezes from time to time at the microphone, even Bobby. Absolutely right. And uh, yeah, good good to be here today. And I too love Promised Land. I think of all the Chuck Berry songs that uh, they covered, probably my favorite, you know, and I know Garcia covered a couple and uh, The Grateful Dead certainly, I think the two or three uh, with Round and Round and Johnny Be Good and Promised Land. But Promised Land of the three definitely holds a special place for me in terms of, A, loving it for uh, how much it rocked, and number two, kind of what it, what it meant to me over the years. So uh, and I'll give a, a shout out to my good buddy, Jeff Kalustin, who might be listening today, to say that every time I hear that song, I still think of him for the first time I ever went and saw a California Grateful Dead show, where we tried to hitchhike from Salt Lake City to Oakland and made it as far as the Salt Lake City Airport, and I finally got so bored sitting on the side of the, the uh, I-80 that I ended up just saying, screw it, I'm buying us plane tickets. And, uh, you know, we ended up touching down in the promised land for, for our first shows for December 27th, 1990. And that was uh, that was the first time I saw the dead in California. So every time I hear that song, I think about kind of the third verse of promised land. And the other reason I love it is, is that song forces uh, Garcia to come in strong, kind of like the end of a masterpiece, where he joins the last part of the, uh, the verse and, uh, you know, does the, the Tidewater 41009 part. And uh, I, I've always loved that. I agree. When you when you get Jerry's voice mixed back in on it, he used to do it on Samson and Delilah, tear this old building down and really drag it out. It's it's just nice to know that he's up there. But uh, man, next time I'm going to a Grateful Dead show with you, that's awesome, boy! What a what a great buddy to be with. Fuck this, man. Let's go to the airport. Yes, that's a win. This is so that that's the good news. The the bad news is the way home, which. Uh, you know, we'd just been in Oakland for four or five days and it had been nice and warm in Oakland. We were totally forgetting that we were coming from, uh, from you know, the colds of the high desert. And we decided to catch a ride on the way back. And the only ride we could find was in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> I can tell you, I almost froze to death going over Donner Summit on the way home. It was so cold that once we got into Reno, I looked for another ride. So I'm like, I can't do it. Jeff had already bailed out and moved into the cab of the truck and made them squeeze three across. And, uh, and so I found someone else was driving back and ended up breaking down in, in, in Elko, Nevada and had to spend a day in Elko with the guy that picked me up. It was uh, it was one of the crazier trips that I've ever uh, experienced hitchhiking home uh, from a dead show. But uh, the, 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 the way out there was nice and smooth. The way home, not so much. Okay. Well, either way, that's still fun. And uh, years later, it makes for good stories, I'm sure. But I don't want to lose sight. This is not just another Grateful Dead show. Yes, it's a great Grateful Dead show. It was their last show of 1973, uh, which was, I think, the first time since 66 or 67 that they didn't do a New Year's show. And the last time they wouldn't do a New Year's show until 1992. Um, but it's Dick's Picks Volume 1. And we haven't spent a whole lot of time on this show really talking about Dick Lovatla and, and really who he was and more than just the 
the curator of the Dead's Vault and uh, the guy who, who picked out the first original 36 shows being released under the Dick's Picks label before he untimely passed away and the mantle was handed over to Dave Lemieux and Dave's Picks, who uh, as of this year have now released 44 and uh, 45 and 46 have been announced for next year already. So the tradition lives on. But if you think about it, a guy like Dick Lavatla, who intimately knew all of the dead shows and and would go back just to listen to little pieces of jams here and there to catch a riff and to and to do whatever uh it was kind of like you know these really religious jewish guys who sit around and study the talmud all day you know and you go back over it a million times and you find little things you didn't know before and i imagine that was probably dick sitting in in the vault listening to all of these shows although he had probably been to most of them so uh, he was really really well versed on it but this was the one that he went with. The story is interesting. Apparently, they only used about 55 minutes of the of the archival footage that was available because that was all he could get the dead to authorize him to release. So don't forget, when this was released, I want to say back in uh, 91 or 92, the dead were still performing. They they weren't gone yet. They were They were still cranking out new shows. And there was a period of time there where there was a, a little bit of... Uh, disagreement among the dead members as to what they would release, what they wouldn't release. So it's interesting. In fact, part of this story is we're, we're going to play one of the songs that was made famous at the time because Phil goes crazy uh, at the end of um, Nobody's Fault But Mine and into the other one. And somewhere along the way, he decided he didn't want his entire bass jam to be included. And uh, he knocked out a little bit of that. So they were still kind of keeping their nose in what was going on. But nevertheless, uh, Dick weathered on and uh, and came out with this show. And, um, you know, it never even bothered any of us that all the tracks on the first disc were completely out of order from the original show. Uh, we were just thrilled to death to have really great live, high-quality Grateful Dead music to listen to. And it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, the, at the time, there weren't a lot of liner notes where Dick explained what he did, whereas today Dave Lemieux writes, you know, a couple of pages for every release. Uh, but later on, there have been articles written about Dick and about uh, what he was looking at and why he chose shows. And um, 73 was one of his favorite years. This was the last show of 73. It's got uh, some great versions of tunes that we're going to start listening to some more of in a minute here. But I just think a great way to end the year for us with a uh, all-time classic Grateful Dead show. Yeah, I agree. And this is another one of those shows that when it came out um, on Dick's Picks, it was a tape that I'd had for years. It was one of my favorite 73 tapes. Uh, I'd always loved the weather report on it. I'd always loved the uh, the Stella on it. There's a handful of things on on the show that were just fantastic, and so completely and totally amazed and surprised when this is what they decided to start releasing as the first uh, Dick's pick. And this was after they'd already started doing the the from the vault series, you know. So we'd already gotten one from the vault. We'd already gotten I think two from the vault before this came out. But this was you know the first time where someone else besides like you know kind of the collective decision of the band said, hey, let's let's actually put something out. And Dick was given a fair amount of deference, from what I understand, to say, I'm going to actually start making these picks. When it says it's a Dick's pick, it really was Dick Letval that said, you know, this is the show I want to put out. And I don't know if you remember, in the original first Dick's picks, there's actually a disclaimer, like almost a, um, on the thing, talking about the audio recording sound and um, what the quality was and what they actually had to do in, in terms of remastering. But it wasn't like, you know, him picking the absolute perfect quality Betty board to say, let's, you know, put this thing out. It was, you know, hey, I'm going to go back and try to fix this thing as best we possibly can. And I think it was him and Kid Candelero that did most of that work. So super cool. And, you know, again, as a fan, when that started happening and you were like, wow, there's a bunch more of these that are about to come out. I mean, this is in the earliest days of CDs too, right? So it was, you know, digital recordings, high quality, and something that, you know, as, as tape traders was totally foreign to us. So what a, you know what a legacy Dick has left as a result of, um, of starting the series. Absolutely. And thank you for correcting me on the pronunciation of his last name, which is Latvala. It just was always difficult to say because you got that T and V right next to each other without a vowel. But, uh, and the caveat emptor provision that you cite was one of the first things I remember reading when I got the disc because it, it talks about uh, uh, how these, these tapes may have been subject to the ravages of time. And, uh, you know, nevertheless, we go through and, and do what we can. And then they end with a great quote, which is, what you hear is what you get and what you get ain't bad. And I think that that, that if, if that doesn't like summarize the entire deadhead experience in a nutshell, I don't know what else does, right? You know, you go into a show, you get what the boys give you and you know, it may not be the top of the line every single time, but you're never going to come out of there and say, 
boy, did I just waste four hours of time. And and I think you make a great point there, Rob, that, that this was, you know, almost kind of edgy in the sense that they were going to put out live music that hadn't been completely, uh, you know, remastered and touched up and, and all of this, they just went with what was there and, and, and tried to, and, and tried to patch it up here and there as best they could. But at the end of the day, you know, he, he did create a legacy that Dave Lemieux has now picked up very ably. And, you know, for all of us deadheads, it's just been a goldmine of great music. Yeah. And, and, and when you think about like what they're doing with, like, from the vault series, like great American music hall was like a natural pick for, you know, the, the one from the vault. And you're thinking, okay, like, you know, they're only going to pick the classic shows. Like that probably means like swing, swing auditorium 77 or, you know, uh, Porchester Capitol theater 71 or, you know, um, you know, May 77 runs. Like those are the things you kind of expected would be the next ones to be released because you figured the demand was there. And in some ways, those are the ones I'm glad they didn't, you know, put out because we all had great tapes of those. You know, like there are already great recordings that existed. Anyone that, you know, knew uh, where to trade tapes with people that had good soundboards already had, you know, things in their collection that that were just, you know, fantastic quality of a lot of the classics. What we didn't have were, you know, the obscure ones that, uh, you know, that had an amazing set list or just, you know, were played flawlessly but you had like a third generation audience of it. And all of a sudden, you know, like, boom, there's like the, the, the quality you've been looking for. So, you know, like anyone could have gotten a, a Cornell or a Buffalo 77 or New Haven 77 on, you know, perfect quality. But, uh, but actually start seeing things where you're like, oh, wow, they're actually going through the archive. They're really figuring out like what their favorites are and, and now giving us a chance to see like, you know, what they get to see. Like for me, it was such a behind the scenes kind of moment of like, Wait, this this is what you know. This is what Dick pulled of, of twenty five thousand recordings. This is his first pick. You know that that, that to me was kind of mind blowing, and uh, and still to this day, like you know, everyone's got their favorites from different eras, but the stuff that uh, has been curated by both Dick Ledvala and by uh, David Lemieux is has been done so in a really really um, thoughtful way, and I'm always excited to see what the next pick is, and, and obviously over time they've they've gotten a lot more. Um, uh, inclusive of like, you know, giant kind of uh, like 40 disc uh, sets and, you know, like trip around the sun and some of the other things they've done that have just been these monstrosities. But, you know, going back to the roots of 91, this is, you know, now 30 years ago, it was, uh, it was one at a time. It was, you know, three disc, um, three disc combos that were, you know, you're so excited for the next one. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, and people say to me now, why do you still subscribe to Dave's picks? You probably have most of these shows. You either have them on tape or you've heard them before, or for God's sakes, you can go into archive.org and download all of them. And I say, I know that, but I'm the guy who the Grateful Dead loves because they can count on me every year to pony up for my Dave's pick subscription. I just want to see what they're going to release. I just want to see what they consider to be you know, what is Dave like for God's sakes? I, you know, I feel like I've, I've had great exposure to uh, uh, the Grateful Dead uh, concert catalog, but not totally. There's plenty of shows out there that I, I don't know about or I'm not familiar with or, you know, haven't really heard under, as you say, in, in really good sound quality. I remember we'd sit around and, and we, you know, always try to get our hands on not just tapes from the early 1970s, but good quality tapes from the 1970s, right? I remember having early versions of 71 shows at Fillmore East that, you know, they were scratching it out. You could barely hear that's it for the other one, but you could hear it. And even then it was so exciting. But yeah, to, you know, to, to hear their favorites, you know, put out in a way that, you know, is exactly the sound quality you'd hope to get if, you know, there was a good taper buddy of yours out there and he had really good taping equipment, but you'd hear the pop, you'd hear a little bit of crowd conversation. You'd hear, there'd always be a little bit of a skip here at the time when, you know, the infamous moment on every taper, right? When they had to flip their cassette over, you know, and the real test was to know when to do it mid-set so you didn't eliminate, uh, you know, cut right out in the middle of a big transition or in the middle of a big uh, of a big tune or anything like that. So it was a real skill. And, and you know what? The truth is, on any given day, I would be just as happy still to take a tape from a, you know, a good taper who's out there because now the, the equipment they're taping with is is practically as good as the stuff you're getting from the dead. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think there's one other person that um – that also we, we should be talking about too. We've obviously covered Dick and we've covered um, uh, David, but one other person that doesn't get credit in this, that I think most Grateful Dead, um, you know, fans of, of people that have actually really gone out of their way to make recordings better is Charlie Miller. And if, uh, if you are on archive or you're on re-listen, the person that's probably done the most for the Grateful Dead community away from the Grateful Dead organization for putting out just amazing like cleanups of, uh, of, of Grateful Dead music 
is Charlie. And I, I hope, you know, anyone from the Grateful Dead organization ever tunes into the show, I, I hope you guys start thinking about, you know, if there's ever going to be a transition away from David Lemieux, that the next person that should be the heir apparent to that position, besides Larry Mishkin, of course, would, would be uh, would, would be Charlie Miller, just because of, you know, the, the work that he's done. But, you know, to anyone out there that's cleaning stuff up and, and putting out, you know, better quality recordings for all of us to consume, either on Relisten or on Archive or in any other um, forum, thank you for what you do. And it doesn't go unnoticed, you know, from the entire Grateful Dead community. Um, I, I look for specific names when I'm going through and, and looking for Internet Archive uh, recordings and go, OK, who actually who uploaded this? If it's, you know, if it's specific people, um, I'm pretty, pretty assured at this point that they've taken the time to, uh, to clean the recording before getting it out to us. Look, you know, it, it's not surprising, right? I mean, not just because no other bands allow taping, but because the fans of the Grateful Dead who tape, you know, do tend to be, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but tend to kind of be technical nerds. You know, Rob and I are more, you know, informational nerds, but there's guys out there who, and maybe Rob is one too, I'm not, that, you know, who know all the top equipment and who know how to, you know, not just make a, a, a cassette recording, but to make a, a DAT cassette recording or whatever. I mean, these guys would sit there with equipment that looked exactly like the soundboard. They'd just be sitting behind the soundboard on their blanket, you know, and you couldn't go into the taping area during the show, you know, during a break, you could kind of maybe work your way in there a little bit if you knew somebody, but it was all business during the show. And, you know, the, thank God there were people doing it and thank God these tapes exist. And, you know, glad that the dead finally got around to taping it all too. And, you know, look, it, it, it's just, it, it's all so good. Um, in talking about the show, I think that one of the things that Dick really emphasized about it is uh, he calls it his uh, all-time favorite version of uh, of our next tune that Dan's going to spin for us here right now, Here Comes Sunshine, uh, which is always a tune I love, but I think Dick might be right on this one. great song just uh uh when they play it on um dane county coliseum february 15th of this 1973 year it's, it's just the same way such a beautiful opening so nice and uh look there's a reason that dick made this show his first release and you know i, I don't have any problem saying that uh, agreeing that this track is the reason um you know dick certainly recorded as the finest version ever written uh, the finest version of the song ever performed excuse me uh, it's over 14 minutes long. It's got great fills, some really good jamming. It's always hard to decide what to pick. And and sometimes I just want to go with a good minute jam for the clip. Uh, sometimes it's good to get a little bit of the jam and then a little bit of the singing. And then, of course, we also always understand that when they sing and they actually say the name of the song in the clip, it helps Dan on his end. So, you know, we try to be uh, full and fair here with everybody. Um but because this was the last show of the year, it, it, it creates some interesting timelines. This is the second to last time uh, the tune was ever played by the band before they put it to bed for almost 19 years. Um, and uh, they played it on February 23rd, 1974 at Winterland. And then it, it fell off the table until December 6th, 1992, uh, when they brought it back during their winter shows at Compton Terrace. And uh, it's interesting because during this period that we're listening to here in 73, um, one of the reviews I was reading was pointing out that this was there was a very, very short window of time when you could catch a show and hear both of Here Comes Sunshine and Weather Report Suite, which this show is an example of. Uh, they're two wonderful tunes. And uh, just because of the vagaries of the way the dead decided when to play and what to play, we all went way too long uh, without it hearing being able to hear either one of them or or really both of them together so it was uh it was wonderful when they decided to to bring it back in uh uh 1992 and rob i'm assuming you probably caught it then 
I was there for the uh, the breakout in 92, and I'll go one step further. I was front row, dead center, and I was miracled for the show um, in the parking lot at Compton Terrace about 15 or 20 minutes before the show started. So another great kind of memory from uh, from you know my days on tour is I flew down to that show, but I was pretty much dead broke um, and got down to, the, to Arizona. And I was in the parking lot looking for a ticket. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, how much you got for one? And I was like, nothing. And he's like, really nothing? And I was like, I don't know. I've got, and I started pulling things out of my pockets. And like this and, you know, you know, like it was basically nothing. Right. And he's like, did I mention his first row? And I was like, you could mention his backstage. It doesn't change the fact that I made any money. Like, you know, but and he's like, well, you got to get something for it. And I was like, look, man, do your thing. I'm not telling you not to sell your ticket. I'm like, but if you got no one else to give it to you, like, I'm right here, you know, coming back and see me. And whatever I said, like struck a chord with, uh, with the guy's girlfriend. And like 20 minutes later, they came back and the guy's like, look, I just got to ask you. He's like, you're wearing like a $600 ski parka. He's like, how do you have no money? And I was like, look, I'm, you know, dirtbag skier living in Salt Lake. Like I, I go skiing every day, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm cash, cash poor right now. I'm like, but I'll tell you what, I'm like, you know, if you still have that ticket, like, you know, I'm sure I can get you some great drugs inside the show. <laughs> he started laughing. He's like, and he's like, yeah, we, we might take you up on that. And he's like, give us a few more minutes. And then they came back like 10 minutes later. And he's like, look, my girlfriend thinks you're cool. We have to sit with you anyway. So, you know, so you're in. And he's like, we'll take you up on the great drugs. So I, I walked in with in, in like literally dead center. It turns out they worked for Ticketmaster. So that's how they had it. And uh, walked me straight down. And as we talked about the, the layout of Compton Terrace, it's really all those different terraces. And uh, stay there for the opening of Here Comes Sunshine. Listen, the whole Here Comes Sunshine, like, just blew my mind that I was there for the breakout. And then ran back onto the uh, the upper sort of uh, lawn area, gathered up as much weed as I could and brought it back down for him. And I was like, we cool? And they're like, we're cool. And we ended up having, a, like, a great time the rest of the show. I never went back to hang out with my friends. I actually stayed with those guys the, uh, the rest of the show. It was, what a fun night. Oh, my. Well, look, there's nothing like getting miracled into a show, but getting miracled into the front row for the breakout of Here Comes Sunshine probably has a special place in the Grateful Dead history book. So good job by you. And, you know, good job to the mystery friend out there who had the dead spirit flowing through him and was happy to play along. That's uh, uh, that's wonderful. It's funny, Larry. I actually posted that story uh, just the other day on uh, when the whole story that, you know, Vince Welnick was the one that brought Here Comes Sunshine back. And it was the Grateful Dead had posted something about it uh, either on Twitter or on Facebook. And I responded back kind of a little bit of that story saying, you know, hey, if you're if you're out there, you know, random ticket master person, you know, again, however many, you know, 30 years later, thank you so much. It uh, it, it made my, it's almost exactly 30 years ago today. Sure. You know, real close. Wow. Yeah. Did you get a response? <laughs> no, no. I got a lot of other people with thumbs ups on the, uh, on the story of, you know, it's great. I mean, the only, I got miracled front row twice. One, once was for the last Grateful Dead show ever. And that was by the head of security, which I've told you at Soldier Field in, uh, in Chicago. And the other time was, uh, was for the Here Comes Sunshine breakout in Compton Terrace. Wow. Crazy. But it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, uh, Vince, because that's in fact, exactly what happened. People were wondering why, you know, what, what motivates the band to bring a song back after 19 years of not playing it. And, and back, I think as, reading from an interview with Vince that I think took place back in 95. And he talks about how he had a little side band called the affordables um, that they used to, he, he used that as a way to make demo tapes to present to the band, to suggest tunes and stuff like that. And he said, you know, all the guys in the band would bring them in. And one day he brought in the affordables version of here comes sunshine. You know, they had sent him a list of tunes and uh, when was the last time a tune was ever played? And he heard it. And he thought, according to Vince, he thought it had a nice Beatles type feel to it. So we did it with the affordables when they opened for the Jerry Garcia band in Halloween of 91. He said, then when they got back into rehearsal mode and said, let's do that. When Jerry responded, well, do we have a copy of the wake of the flood around, which is the, the album it, it came out on. And uh, Vince said, no, but uh, I have a copy of the affordables arrangement. And interestingly, the affordables were the ones who had uh, developed the acapella opening that the boys started using when they sang it again in 92 which was one of two songs that Vince brought back that had acapella openings uh, rain, the, the, the Beatles tune being the other one. Yep. Those are the two songs that both started with acapella and they're both, both Vince that, uh, that, that brought those arrangements to the table. Absolutely. You know, so, so uh, I know Vince sometimes gets the short end of the stick when people sit down and talk about uh, grateful dead keyboard players, but you know, he's do his shout out and, uh, and certainly his credit for, uh, 
for moving the band in the right direction with a lot of these songs. And, you know, it's interesting because I always felt that Brent was the same way and that Brent kind of pushed tunes on the band. You know, Dear Mr. Fantasy was a classic. Brent, we're playing this whether you guys want it or not. And um, uh, I, I like that, you know, it just happened to be keyboard players each time. But the fact you bring somebody new in and they're like, hey, well, what about this tune? And, you know, it revitalizes Jerry to do it again. And, you know, those of us who weren't around to see him back in uh, – uh, 72 and 73 or 74 really appreciate the fact uh, that Vince pushed him to do it. And, you know, I remember hearing it the first time at um, the Rose, at the Rosemont horizon up here. And, you know, for a second there, it really kind of took you back. I mean, the acapella opening was different, wonderful. But then when you hear those opening notes, it's just uh, you know, what a great tune. It, it, for me, it really symbolizes like this era of the grateful dead in 73 and uh, lots of good things that go along with it. So um you know, hats off to Dick for knowing uh, the great song and the great version of it and and, and throwing that in there. So um, uh, that's a great thing as well. The one thing I'll say, Larry, about the uh, about the 1992 breakout was that the mic pickups weren't on for the opening part of the singing. So if you actually listen to the recording, you miss the first, like, here comes, and they, they come on, like, with the word sunshine. Mm. So if you watch the video, you can see them singing into the mics, but the mics just, like, get turned on, whoever's at the board wasn't um wasn't paying attention that they were ready Ooh. and so you hear nothing and so it's like sort of just like you know dead dead and then like sunshine but the uh, the crowd reaction is insane it, it's, it was so much fun absolutely i i could hear it because i was in the front row well that <laughs> <laughs> i was watching something the other night and they were talking about people who go to the opera and sit in the first row and when you do you realize how much the performers spit and i thought you know, one time I was in the front row for the Grateful Dead at Alpine Valley. Uh, we were in our seats. We weren't r literally right up against the stage. I don't remember seeing anyone spitting, but you know what? I'd, I'd do with that to be in the front row, so that's all good. Yeah, I mean, there's the uh, T-shirt the that used to say, Bobby, spit on me. <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. Quickly turning to uh, a little bit of marijuana stuff uh, before we uh, – continue on with this great show. I saw a story the other day, Rob, that I thought was really very interesting because it kind of seemed to do a flip on a, a marijuana issue, a legal issue with respect to absence of federal law. You can't get a trademark under federal law for anything that has a marijuana reference. The, the trademark office is still very, very strict about that. And that's created problems for people. Also, you, you could trademark something on the state level, but you can't enforce it on a federal level, right? There's no recognized federal trademark right that exists to anything that has uh, a marijuana reference or symbol or, or word in there. So as a result, the problem always was to say to people, look, you can go and you can get your trademark, but you're never going to be able to enforce it. You know, you, you can go out there and do it, but, but you lose that. But here was a case that came out where it seemed to be the opposite, edible arrangements, which has nothing to do with marijuana, but creates like uh, cookies or uh, fruits that are in the shape of fun little things that you can eat and, you know, serve at parties and stuff like that, decided that they were going to bring a trademark action against MSO, GTI, Green Thumb Industries, because Green Thumb came out with a, a, a line of edibles uh, that they were, you know, calling edible arrangements. And... The, the real edible arrangements, the original guys didn't like it. No, it, it wasn't edible arrangements, just Incredibles. In Incredibles, excuse me. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it was the edibles company that was actually based in Colorado for a long time that DTI purchased. Um, in Incredibles was a, a great brand for a long time in Colorado. They were the number one until uh, until Wana. They were the number one um, edibles brand in Colorado for years. Yes, thank you. It, it, it was Incredibles. And so it wasn't even a direct infringement, but one that edible arrangements thought was close enough, but they lost or they didn't lose. They've, they've ultimately decided to, uh, 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 to dismiss their own lawsuit because they saw that they weren't going to win. And, you know, in the write-ups about it, what people are saying is it creates a legal ambiguity here because th the products that are alleged to be the infringing product are not federally legal. So, right, while makers of a cannabis product that are federally legal do have a protectable trademark right, hemp certainly, the question of whether makers of a product that, although similar in other respects, involves federally illegal cannabis are infringing on those protectable marks is less clear cut. So it, it almost like giving the people in the marijuana industry a break. 
I mean, look, it's the same sort of catch 22 of the only reason that, you know, we get away with um, the cannabis industry at all is because it's a schedule one drug. If it was a schedule two or schedule three, we wouldn't have that same luxury. But when the federal government treats it as, you know, persona non grata, that just doesn't exist, then it affords certain protections that you wouldn't otherwise expect you have simply because there's, you know, they, they can't have it both ways. They, they can't they can't say it's in our purview and at the same time it's not. So uh, when they've completely categorically just dismissed the uh, the, the, the uh, cannabis from from being recognized by anything, then they can't go back and say, oh, you're infringing on something else because in their mind, it doesn't exist in the first place. Yes, which is, you know, maddening, although, you know, what's interesting is that with um I'm sorry, Larry, did, did, did you just say that like a government policy is maddening? Imagine that. Yeah, well, <laughs> do you expect yeah. anything differently? Come on, man. Okay, it was a Captain Obvious moment, and I missed it completely. So I, you know, I, yes, but it, but what what about Gorilla Glue? What's the distinguishing factor there? Because the guys that were putting out Gorilla Glue strains stopped. That might have just been fear. You know, GTI actually had the ability to uh, to litigate, right? Yeah. So if GTI is like, look, we, first of all, we don't think there's a, um, a a real infringement here. We're not calling it Incredibles arrangements. We're not calling it anything you know similar. Gorilla Glue is a direct, like they were using someone else's trademark patented name yeah. like, directly. Yeah. So Incredibles had, you know, a fair amount of, uh, of wiggle room. I don't think there's anything that, if, if, like, I never once, and I, I'm a big fan of Bob Machino's old company, I never once ever equated Incredibles with edible arrangements. If someone sold me a strand of Gorilla Glue, the first thing I would think of if, if I bought it was, you know, the packaging for Gorilla Glue, <laughs> you know, like, so I can understand, and if I were the people that are putting out a strain, I mean, look, all they did is change the name to G Glue or whatever, you know, uh, other minor distinction they made, just like Girl Scout cookies turned into like, you know, um, GSC. So there's, it's not hard once the public knows what it is that we'll still figure out the strain. I mean, Skittles is still Skittles, and you know, Skittles brand hasn't come after those guys for that. So we'll see. But I think a lot of it comes down to do you have the uh, the ability to fight back? And I think that um, I think edible arrangements. Um, grossly underestimated their adversary. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's very true. And you also raise a good point, though, when you say that, you know, direct use of a name, because most states have state law uh, fraudulent business practices statutes that would still allow a company with a name that's that's rec- been rec- become recognized in the state to potentially be protected as well. So e- either way, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting situation, but it's just one of those things where you see and it's like, wow, you know, here's the rule kind of working in the opposite direction. But you're right. If, if, if the federal law, the federal judiciary's position is going to be marijuana doesn't exist for us, then there's really nothing they can do. Yeah. And I expect that will change over time. And I've, I've got to think that the people that are probably the most infuriated by this were, uh, <laughs> were the, the legal team for edible arrangements. I'm sure they looked at going, are you guys like out of your minds? What do you mean? Like, this, like of course we have a claim here. I'm sure they were being told, uh, sorry guys, you know, there's no claim here because there, there is no Incredibles. I'm like, what do you mean? It's right there. Like, no, no, no. Sorry, there, there is no Incredibles. But, but, but I'm looking at it. There's Incredibles right there. No, no, guys, really, the, there is no Incredibles. You know, so it, it's got to be one of those things. As the uh, opposing counsel, you got to be sitting there, just going absolutely nuts. Going, I, I don't understand how you how you can't um, compartmentalize this. Right. But you know, here we are again. Bureaucracy at its finest. Yep. And, you know, just makes more good stories for us to talk about. Some lawyer gets to litigate it. And, you know, at the end of the day, the government finally opens up their eyes, hopefully along the way and says, yeah, 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 we get it now. We just didn't want to have to. If We just didn't want to if we didn't have to. But, you know, the more of these kind of stories that come out, you know, you know, edible arrangements probably just isn't big enough to make a big stink. But if this was a larger company, uh, you know, trying to do it, they might be pushing back in a way that you know, might get legislators to take another look at it. And, you know, that's actually kind of an interesting thought, you know, maybe another way to support uh, federal legalization is to get companies with valuable trademarks to go say, hey, we want to be able to enforce our, enforce our trademarks, make marijuana legal. Well, what I can tell you is that I think we found a very um, creative way to get around the federal trademark prohibition. Yeah. Uh, my good buddy and yours, Dave Branchman, has uh, some some very good ideas around that. Uh, sure. I won't reveal them on, on air, but, uh, but they're there may be a way to get a federal patent or a federal trademark uh, through the patent or trademark office for a cannabis product if you know the right place to uh, to look. And so I'll leave it cryptically at that for now, and we'll speak offline later, Larry, and I'll clue you into the end around. Well, but either way, let's use this as an advertisement for our good friend Dave Bramfman and anybody who wants to reach out to him. 
and pay his very, very reasonable hourly rate, I'm sure he'll be more than happy to enlighten you. If he's even taking on new Canvas clients at this point. Ah. <laughs> I think Dave is a... I think Dave has sailed largely uh, into the seas of retirement and, and takes on things sparingly now uh, at his discretion. But yes, if you if, if you have the uh, the need, um, I would definitely look up Dave Branfman, attorney at law in Solana Beach, California. Uh, he is a terrific USPTO attorney for the cannabis industry. Absolutely. And as long as we're talking about this stuff, uh, and, and we last week we spent a little bit of time uh, talking about flour, um, you know, just to kind of stay with that theme for a minute. New selling reports are out and apparently pre-rolls are hitting it big at the moment. And, um, you know, you have your regular joints, you have your infused joints, you have your infused and flavor joints wrapped in keef and anything else they can put on there, hash oil and everything. But I'm a big fan of joints and I'm happy to see uh, uh, that they're making a comeback like that. Yeah, I mean, I think they're the, uh, the fastest <clears throat> growing category in the cannabis space right now. Um, across like all different, you know, sort of categories. And a lot of that is attributed to the, um, the rise of the infused joint. You know, right now guys are basically taking diamonds and, and then, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of spraying or, or saturating their uh, uh, shake with diamonds and they're turning, you know, mediocre, almost throwaway product into uh, what can be used as a very high potency joint now. And it's, um, uh, a huge moneymaker for the industry for those guys that are doing it. And it's also a, um, a, a category where because of the size the guys are doing, you know, what, what GTI first coined as the dog walker. And now I think everyone else has embraced, you know, which is a, a half gram joint. You know, it's, it's a super easy way to consume. It's you know, something you can share with one person or two people or three people and be in and out really fast. But, uh, but it is the form factor it is really, really popular right now. Yep. I think that's right. Um, in fact, I, I'm I'm very happy to see it. I, I only have two issues. The first one is is that at least for now, every pre-roll I seem to buy from a dispensary does that Mitch McConnell thing on the way down the side. Oh, the canoe. And it just ruins the experience, <laughs> right? The ember falls out. You can't get it relit or burning like it was. Um, and that to me is incredibly frustrating, although uh, one exception to note out is our friends at Rebel Spirit out in Washington State who, who do uh, have a uh, their own special method of cutting their flower uh, to avoid that from happening. Um, you know, Rebel Spirit, no Mitch McConnell here, so that's a good thing. But, uh, you know, I'd like to think that others in the industry can do that because if you're going to lay out decent money for a pre-roll, uh, it should properly burn. The other thing that worries me uh, on a much different kind of level, I guess, is, you know, as a result of all of this, I think we're going to reach a point where the art of rolling joints will be lost. Um, these days, I know a handful of guys my age who roll classic joints by hand, no filters, no cones, just a zigzag, some weed. And, you know, they're very skilled fingers, you know, one who can roll a joint with one hand while sitting at a red light. You know, now you're either smoking uh, pre-rolls or people are buying the cones, which let's not kid ourselves is, you know, for those of us who couldn't roll really high quality joints is like, you know, the greatest thing that ever happened. Um, but I'm just afraid we'll, we'll, we'll get to a point in time where we're going to, we're going to miss out on that wonderful skill. Yeah. Look, I, I hats off to all my friends that can roll great joints. I was never one of them. I would roll what was uh, colloquially referred to as the pregnant worm. Um, and that was about, about as well as I, I could do. Uh, and that was, you know, no lack of trying over the years, but, uh, I just did not have the skill when I moved to Whistler, British Columbia and every single Canadian kid I knew could, could roll a perfect joint. And they were all using a crutch, you know, long before anyone else was using, you know, a, fil a filter here in the United States. Those guys had like the art of joint rolling down. They all had, like, you know, uh, coffee grinders in their houses and just grind up nugs and, you know, twist it up. Um, I smoked bowls and bong hits when I was in the States and I got to Canada and everyone just smoked joints. So I, I had to try to teach myself and uh, failed miserably. Now I will caveat that with saying there's some arts that I'm perfectly happy to see go by the wayside uh, in terms of better like technology. And I think that if you can get a perfect joint, I mean, to your, to your point, by the way, audience, if you can't tell Larry's pushing really, really hard to get the, uh, the terminology from canoeing in a joint uh, gone and McConnell being replaced so from here on in, whenever your joint just goes up the side, just be like, oh, your joint's McConnelling, and, and you'll make Larry happy. He's certainly making an effort to, to change the vernacular. You know why I do it, Rob? Because it's slots of fun. It is slots of fun. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, in, in this case, like I, I haven't had the same experience, and most of the pre-roll companies know that are doing it right these days, uh, including you know my team at Forefront, 
those joints burn, you know, pretty, pretty much straight up the center. So, you know, if I can get one that's already perfectly formed without ever having to try to roll a joint again, I'm happy to do it. I'll still respect the guys that can do it on their own, sort of like the, the, the craftsmen of the industry that uh, they're still able to roll perfect joints. But if not, I mean, shit, that's what technology is for. And I can tell you that in the old days, I gave up and I finally got one of those little cigarette rolling machines that you just drop it in the middle and then put a, put a piece of you know, a, a rolling paper in there and uh, twist out a perfect one that was you know, perfectly formed. And I was happy as could be with that. Uh, so, you know, work with technology, Larry. Don't fight it. Oh, I, are you kidding? For a while, I was a big fan of Randy's because they have the little wire on one side with the idea being that as you smoke it down, you have the wire that you can hold on to so you didn't have to throw away... Uh, your, your, your roaches at the end, your joints, you could just keep them and you could keep smoking them, you know, right, literally right down to the end. It had the, yeah. And you didn't need a roach clip. Yes. It had the added benefit though of the wire stabilizing. So it made it much easier to roll a joint. So that was my little crutch. That's true. That is definitely true. Yeah. To me, the, um, that, that gimmick. And then, um, <clears throat> the girl's bottle cap was the other one that just made my joint smoking experience that much easier. So you never have to get a roach clip. Just pop it right in there and, you know, finish your joint off that way. Absolutely. When, when I was at school, we had a buddy whose claim to fame was that anywhere, anytime he could find, he could get his hands on either a roach clip or something that could be used as a roach clip within 30 seconds of you asking him. So one day we were driving down the road and some, his buddy yelled out, I need a roach clip. Guy pulled off to the side of the road, ran up to a telephone pole, pulled some wood off the telephone pole, split it, brought it back to the car and handed it to his buddy. I was impressed. Talk about backing up the claim. I, I've got that same claim for opening a bottle. I don't care where you are. If you've got a beer bottle and he's opening, I can figure something out in about 10 seconds or less that, that'll open it. Yeah, we, we had guys, you know, uh, who would uh, use the lighters to pop them off. And, and I'll confess, I, I never quite was good enough at that. These guys would just take a pop, pop, pop. And I. Larry, it is the best bottle opener in the world. A big lighter, there's nothing better. Like, I don't care what other tool you have. I can pop beer bottles faster with a Bic than anything. Well, you'll teach me because all I do is, is grind up the bottom of the Bic lighter on the edge of the cap. You're not leveraging off the top of your off the top of your um, finger. Okay. It's all about the leverage. Okay. Okay. I'm going home and trying tonight just to see what I can do. Yep. By the way, seatbelts work really well, too. Ah, okay. I can see that also. Sure. Yeah. It, it, to encourage all the drinking and driving out there, you know, <laughs> if you want to open a beer in your car. The, the, the part the, the metal part at the end that you uh, clip into the seatbelt um, uh, acceptor is a uh, it's probably the best bottle opener there is. Okay, see, the drinking and driving, you're right. They knew exactly what they were doing. That's right. I, I didn't want to, officer, but the car company was encouraging it. Did you see how they made the seatbelt? It wasn't me. It's practically asking me to open a beer. Nothing, nothing That's I could do that. about it. Just yeah. the, the way <laughs> the way it falls. Let's go back to our concert here for a minute because. Uh, we have some other really great clips that I want to make sure we get to. Uh, the next one is is a song that uh, we featured as a clips from other shows. Um, there was only a short period. Well, not a, I don't want to say too short of a period, only about a three or four year period where it was available to hear. And uh, this next clip is uh, me and Bobby McGee. So, uh, Dan, if you could spin that for us. So Rob, you know, we, we, we've, we've listened to this song. We've talked about this song. What a great tune. Chris Christopherson tune from 69 first recorded by Roger Miller of all people. Uh, Janice didn't record it until 1970, really right before she died. 
the Dead picked it up on November 29th, 1970 at Club Agora in Columbus, Ohio, uh, and, and played it just about 100 times or so, uh, the last time being on October 16th, 1974, a Bobby birthday show. And then uh, for reasons that can't be explained and we can't attribute it to Vince because he wasn't with the band yet, but in 1981, in December of 81, they pulled it out on the 12th uh, in San, at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds. And then at the uh, New Year's shows that year on the 30th and the 31st, uh, they played it two nights in a row in, in the uh, Oakland Auditorium. And then that was it. It just disappeared. And uh, I didn't see my first show until uh, uh, a few months later. And so by that point, it's gone. Never had a chance to hear me and Bobby McGee and just always had hoped that somewhere along the way, Bobby might get tired of playing CC Ryder and bring it back in. No yeah. Way. I was always a, a big fan. I got to tell you that when I first heard it, you know, I only knew it as a Jans tune. I didn't know it was a Chris Christopherson tune until, you know, I was probably 17 or 18 years old. And I always thought it was really funny that Bobby decided to play a song that was a girl's song, you know, that, that was speaking about, you know, her experience with the guy, Bobby McGee and, and not the other way around where the, the woman's Bobby McGee. Right. So it, it, it kind of threw me for a loop until someone's like, well, you know, it's a Chris Christopherson tune. And I was like, oh, wait, so it was Janice that switched the uh, the genders. And so it, it, it took me a, a while to realize that Bobby was originally written as a as a woman. Well, and, and Bobby being one of those names that uh, lends itself to that kind of thing. So, yeah, it was it, it could be sung by anybody. And and I think we also talked about how on the uh, the Great North Express uh, in, in 1970, when they were all on the train, that's spurred on the song might as well uh that uh bobby and jerry and and janice spent a lot of time on that trip kind of working through arrangements of it and everything but uh you know it's a great song it's just wonderful and you know like so many others of theirs it, there was a time for it and then there wasn't a time for it and you know who knows what uh, what controlled that side of their brains but we we all lost out on it and the folks who saw them early you know can walk around and know that they got to see a great tune yeah and uh, I'll say there's some Grateful Dead covers where I think the Dead played it better than anyone that came before them, you know, Morning Dew being the obvious one. But but I got to give it to Janice on this one. I think Janice still played the best version of Bobby McGee, better than Christopherson, better than the Dead, better than, than anyone else that, that played the song. The definitive version is, is definitely hers. No argument for me, you know, she, but, you know, Janice was Janice. And, and, you know, she's also on the list of people, you know, who died at 27 way too early for the rest of us. But uh yeah, when you hear her sing it, and you know, you, and you hear the raw energy and the motion in her voice, and you really believe that she's telling you a story about her and her boyfriend, and uh, or maybe her girlfriend, who knows? But uh, either way, it's it's just a classic rock and roll tune, and it was great that the Dead picked it up and played with it for a while. And if nothing else, we've got wonderful memories and early versions of it, and uh, that's good enough for me. So uh, you know, we we get what we can get. From there, uh, the the next clip I just want to pop into really quickly here as well, because this is a fun one. It, it starts off towards the end of Nobody's Fault But Mine, which we talked about a Blind Willie Johnson tune from uh, back in the late 1920s. I think Led Zeppelin did a version of it uh, sometime in the mid-1970s. Um, but, you know, the dead picked it up as they did with so many of these uh, early blues numbers. And uh, we talked about that a little bit last week as well. Uh, and this was such a good song. They only played it, I think they said, about 30 times. Uh, and I was looking at it. It was interesting. 30 times out of like 2,000 shows. So just a little bit better than about, you know, you had a 1.5% chance of walking into a dead show and hearing nobody's fault but mine, assuming you were in the right time periods. But uh, this is a great tune. And then it rolls right into a tremendous version of the other one. But the reason I picked it did, is because... Did you ever see one? I did see a nobody's fault but mine. Yes, right. thank you. I got, I got one too. That was, I got, actually, I got two of them. Kansas City, uh, 1985 at the uh, Starlight Theater. Ah, it was wonderful. I, great show. Yes. So I was always happy about that. But when I was reading about this, and another one of the reasons why Dick loved this show so much is that there is a great jam uh, on Nobody's Fault But Mine into the other one. And uh, there's a, a portion in there right towards the end of this, of Nobody's Fault and right into the beginning of the other one where Phil lays down a, a, a very fierce... Uh, bass solo. I think uh, uh, Dick referred to it as a Phil O. Stomp. Uh, people just rave about it, but in reading the articles about it, and and, and even including this one, where uh, you know Dick was only able to get so much authority from the band in terms of how much he could release. Apparently, Phil did not want uh, the full bass solo to be released, and so you, you'll hear it right as we transition into the other one. It's very unmistakable. There's you know anybody who's ever heard a. Uh, a Mike Gordon bass intro to Weekapog Groove, uh, you know, knows how uh, 
how impressive a, a bass solo can be. Um, and, you know, Phil, here you, you hear it. It just kind of makes you wonder uh, what we might really be missing out on and where the hell do we find a tape that has uh, uh, the original version in there. But, Dan, go ahead and spin it for us, please. So there you have it, Rob. It's, uh, uh, you know, if you're listening, you hear Phil just sitting there plucking away on the bass for a few minutes and he's so good. I, it would have been so nice so many other times just to let him, you know, do a little bass riff like that. And he would do his bombs and everything else, but it's, it's just wonderful to see it focused on here. And I'd love to talk to Phil and find out why he wasn't so keen on uh, letting it out with the rest of the music. Yeah, it's really strange, isn't it? I mean, it, it, I mean, if it was any other band member, I wouldn't really believe the story. With Phil, he's the only person I can imagine that I go, yeah, it kind of makes sense. You know, but there's certain things that just don't. That, that I don't understand why you wouldn't want to do it. He obviously had his reasons, but uh, you know, look, I, I think he came off that mark pretty quickly, and certainly hasn't looked back since. I never heard anything subsequent to uh, to his argument on on that jam of anything being released in any of the uh, you know, following series of, of either Dick's picks or Dave's picks. But maybe, maybe there was something that was just a real personal attachment to, uh, to this transition jam, but it is certainly one that um, is, is very unique. Yeah, it is. And, and, you know, Phil, you know, maybe he was, you know, that kind of a genius, right? The guy wrote symphony orchestras for God's sakes, you know? So, I mean, you know, we're talking about a lot of talent up in that brain and, uh, you know, doing whatever he did. But either way, it, it, that's that's just a great combination of songs. Um, and, you know, as always, folks, you know, with all of these songs, we're, we're sitting here trying to pick clips from one of these songs is impossible because you get to the end of the clip you think you're going to use and they spill right over into another part of the song that's just as good. But, you know, Dan is very strict about how much of a song we can play because otherwise we wouldn't do any talking. So um, you, you, just, you just need to either go get Dick's Picks Volume 1 and play it the way Dick presented it or go to archive.org and download the show and just listen to it all the way through because it uh, all of this is great. And the whole Nobody's Fault But Mine into a tremendous other one is a lot of fun and and, and really well worth listening to. To be clear, folks, if, uh, if Larry's given his choice, the Deadhead Canvas show would devolve into Larry smoking weed and listening to Grateful Dead and, and just, you know, putting that on the air. And that would be uh, that'd be the whole show. Isn't that what we're doing already? <laughs> well, we, we managed to talk about some topics once in a while, you know, we, 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 we try to, we try to at least impart some level of knowledge of what we're doing in the industry, but, but yeah, for the most part, we're not, not too far off the mark there. Okay, good. I don't want to think I'm unusual or anything for God's sakes. So if I throw out the name Skunk Baxter to you, do you know who I'm talking about? Jeff Skunk Baxter, the session musician. Yeah, of course. Did a lot of jamming with uh, uh, Steely Dan, very famous jamming with the Doobie Brothers. And uh, actually, I'm hoping to go see him tomorrow night here at Space in Evanston. He's coming through, and a buddy of mine was able to score some tickets. So uh, I actually have to drive down to Bloomington, Illinois tomorrow to pick up my son from school. But I've got it timed out that I'll get back in enough time to go catch Skunk. So very excited to see him. That'll be really cool. I've, I've never seen Skunk Baxter play, but uh, but yeah, I, I was a huge Steely Dan fan. Doobie Brothers, not as much. I mean, respect, uh, but not really my thing. But Steely was, uh, I thought, one of the most creative bands that's ever played. Um, so, and anyone that was, anyone they were playing with, I always thought of them as being the most technically proficient band that uh, existed during that late 70s, early 80s kind of era. And I'd still say Aja's probably top to bottom, one of like the 10 best albums ever made. So, and, and Skunk was very much on that album. Yes, I love that album. And, you know, I mean, I, I was always uh, uh, enough of a Doobie Brothers fan. There's nothing like a killer China Grove. It just, you know, really gets a party going and uh, uh, is a lot of fun. And uh, Skunk is quite the talent. Now, you know, the funny thing about him, when I was reading up on him, and I confess I didn't know any of this, 
but apparently he consults with the government on nuclear missile defense. And he apparently has some background, engineering background or some degree that allows him to be able to do this. And I just think that's amazing. You know, if you take a look at Skunk Baxter, he looks like, you know, uh, you know, a kind of a little bit of a stoned out guitarist, big, long mustache, hanging down, long hair. I mean, he's perfect for the 1970s. He's a freak. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and he's consulting with the government on missile defense. I just I'm I guess I'm impressed and I'm amazed all at the same time. Hey, he managed to find his way into a managed to find his way into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the same time. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, and well deserved. So everybody can't go to uh, a space in Evanston, but uh, go out and listen to Skunk by Asia, by uh uh, the Captain and Me or any of these other great albums by these bands and just sit back and you got some great music to listen to and, and he's a big contributor to all of it. Yeah, so I was wrong. He he actually did not play in Asia. I'm looking it up right now. He played on their first three albums. He was on Camp by Thrill, Countdown to Ecstasy, and Pretzel Logic. Uh, so he was, um, uh, and, and the solo in Ricky Don't Lose That Number, number yes. was Skunk Solo. Yes, yes, that's true. So thank you for the clarification for our fans keeping score at home, but um, go back and listen to that and appreciate skunk for what he does. And then I guess you can also thank him for keeping us safe from Russian nuclear missiles. So, you know, that's a, that's a double win. On the other hand, let's talk about what's going on in the state of Oregon for a minute and the decision out there that they're going to really, really start cracking down on illegal grows. And when I see that, it makes me laugh because the only people in Oregon who aren't growing illegally are the folks with licenses who are growing legally, right? It seems like everybody else in the state has a marijuana garden in their backyard. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm really curious uh, what your thoughts on this. You're familiar uh, with the Southern Oregon weed scene and the, the community up there a little bit. And I, you know, that would be like saying we're going to, we're going to start busting the green triangle under the emerald triangle and just go in and start arresting all the legacy growers. I, I, I read it and I see it, but I have a hard time believing it actually happens. What do you think? Yeah. Let me think about the most eloquent way I can, can say this blah 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 good luck i mean come on man getting oregon to stop growing weed it's impossible like literally impossible okay what are you gonna do you gonna go door to door around eugene and knock on every door and you know shut them down like they couldn't stop illegal growing back you know before there was legal weed they think they're gonna stop now go anywhere south of like you know anywhere in the grants pass region uh where it's you know nothing but growers and loggers Good luck, man. First of all, those guys are armed to the teeth. And second of all, they're in the middle of freaking nowhere. Uh, third of all, they've been doing this stuff for 50 years. There isn't a chance in the world you're snuffing out illicit growing in Oregon. Now, if you're talking about, like, you know, maybe busting some, like, trap operations and warehouses around Portland, maybe. But, you know, the outdoor guys, the, the, the greenhouse guys, not a chance, man. Like, the entire, like, the economy of a certain part of Oregon is 100% based on cannabis growing the same way it is in like Mendocino and Humboldt and, uh, and in Trinity and, you know, um, Grass Valley. Like there's parts of this country where the, they, they live and always have lived on, on a weed economy. So, you know, okay, make whatever overture you want. I'll believe it when I see it. And it ain't happening. Like, like not now, not never. So good luck. Yeah. You know, and that's the way I feel. And, you know, maybe they would say, Hey, look, we have a job to do. We have to at least give the impression that we're trying or something. And, you know, at the end of the day, they can say whatever they want. But to me, it's just more oppression from the government on something that they don't understand and they still can't control, even though they try to say that they do control it. And I think everybody would be a lot better off if they just legalized weed and got the hell out of everybody's way. Yeah, the, the only way you're going to stop illicit growing in Oregon is to legalize every other market. So there's no market for those guys to sell into. Until that happens, as long as there's demand for what they produce, they're producing. I mean, there, there's, there's no way around that. Well, but I mean, do you, I mean, look, I, I guess legal weed grown in Oregon is, is still Oregon weed. So that, you know, but, but my experience is, you know, in most states, certainly in California and Illinois and other states that have, you know, very well-developed legal programs, the black market is flourishing. That's what I'm saying. Like in, until, until Illinois' market is able to capture 100% of, um, of the cannabis market, until they can make an efficient marketplace where no one's importing into Illinois anymore because like the, uh, the illicit market isn't less expensive than the, than, than the legal market is. I mean, look, no one on this show that listens to the show hasn't heard me say this 100 times at this point. But until you create a more efficient market, you will never get rid of the illicit market. And as long as, as long as Illinois is still a place, as long as Chicago is going to swallow up everything that can be sent into that town, 
then guess what? You will never get rid of, of, of illegal grows in Oregon, Washington, or California. It will never happen. Yeah. I would tend to agree with that. And thank God, because, you know, look, with all due respect to all of the uh, licensed growers in Illinois and in other states, you know, there's something really special still about the marijuana that comes from these guys who have been doing it forever and who are doing it because, you know, they get up in the morning and they go talk to their plants for three hours and they, you know, well, we gave it this kind of water last week and we're going to give it this kind of, you know, and, and people can say, look, weed is weed and, you know, whatever, but I don't care when you're, when you're smoking really, really good grown outdoor weed from California, uh, from Oregon, it just, it, you know, or, or from our good friends, you know, uh, anywhere who do it. It's, it's just uh, one of those things where you have to say, wow, this is, this is great. And this is what I'm going for. Once I've had it, how can I not? Yeah. I mean, it's, the, there's a reason moonshiners still exist, right? You know, there's, there's certain things just because there's a legal industry doesn't mean there's not going to be an illegal industry. If it's lower price and it's uh, it's good quality, uh, it's going to happen. And I agree. I mean, the, the, the best, some of the best weed in the world. I mean, there's definitely the, the people that prefer indoor, like the vast majority of people prefer indoor, but there's a lot of people that love their organic outdoor weed. And uh, that's that's still coming from Southern Oregon. It's still coming from Northern California. Yep. And so say to the government, good luck and have fun. Um, just stay out of everybody else's way, please. Uh, well, Rob, we are uh, getting to the end of our time here today. As always, uh, thank you to you and thank you to Dan Humiston for another wonderful year of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is... Uh, uh, more than just a little pet project for me or for you. I, this is something that, uh, you know, I look forward to each week. It's a great break from everything else I'm doing, have a chance to hang out with you guys, uh, talk Grateful Dead, marijuana. There's not a whole lot more other than Michigan football that I like to sit around and talk about with people. So, um, you know, I give a quick shout out to the Wolverines, but not too loud because they still have some games to play. You know, to all of our listeners, I hope everyone has great holidays, uh, a very happy, healthy new year. We're going to be coming back on, uh, uh, January 9th with our uh, with our next show. Although please stay tuned because over the next couple of weeks, uh, Dan will be going into our wonderful catalog of back shows and pulling out a couple of uh, fan favorites uh, just for you people who crave uh, Grateful Dead and marijuana content on a weekly basis. We're going to have it for you. Uh, but we will be back in January and, and ready to rock and roll some more. So uh, guys, happy holidays and thanks for all the help. For sure. And uh, happy holidays to everyone out there. And I'm going to channel my, my best inner Kreskin right now and, and just say congratulations to Lionel Messi and to the Argentinian team for winning the, uh, the World Cup this year. So uh, hope to see you all next year. And we look forward to uh, everyone having a great holiday season and uh, a terrific time uh, over the New, Year New Year's as well. And hopefully get out there and get on the mountain, go skiing or do something fun, go down to the, the islands. But uh, until 2023, uh, this is Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings signing off, and we'll see you in the, the new year. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Dan. Uh, we're going to let you go with uh, Weather Report Suite because uh, we were just talking about it before. And if you have both of them in the same show, you have to listen to it. We, we, we're not going to get this time to the winter gray snow and rain part, which at least in this part of the country is holding true, uh, because some of the other jamming is just so awesome that uh, – uh, we couldn't pass it up. But again, please go back, listen to the whole thing, listen to the whole show. Uh, happy holidays, happy, healthy new year to everyone. And please uh, enjoy your cannabis and enjoy it responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. 
If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.